Hey, welcome to How to Write a Novel. I don't have my proper recorder on me, so this is my little shitty phone. Bad sound quality episode. But let's do another short one, man. Another short little episode. So one thing I've been noticing lately is the absurd slowness that I write at. <laughs> I've been noticing this because, like, uh, Brianna, who does the Teaching Myself to Write Novels podcast that I mentioned. She's finished uh, a super rough draft of her book. She's calling it like draft zero. You know, it's not even a draft one because it's just super quick. But still, it was like three months or something. I'm like, whoa, that's pretty fast. Uh, and then somebody emailed me the other day that was like, hey, dude, I found your podcast a couple of weeks ago. It's like, it's helping me, you know, inspire me and blah, blah, blah. But the dude was like, yeah, since uh, lockdown started, you know, pulled out this book that I started working on five years ago. And I've been doing it. I got my first draft just done again in like three months. <laughs> and he mentioned, he's like, because, you know, obviously this podcast started like two years ago, over two years ago now, I guess. So he's like, hey, and uh, I checked Amazon for that book Explode you mentioned. I didn't see it. Is it not out yet? <laughs> it's like, nope, it sure isn't. My first draft isn't even done. And it's like, man, I really am slow. I'm like absurdly slow. I'm crazy slow. But I guess that's kind of what I've been saying this whole time, and this is just kind of reiterating the same thing, is that for me, I just don't think there's any other way when I think about all the other books that I just never finished. You know, it's like, I guess uh, I'm seeing it from both sides. There's published authors and people that have uh, made it to the top of the mountain and have gotten stuff out. It's like, okay, I'm probably pretty slow compared to most of them. <laughs> but now also on the other side, people coming up behind me that started after I did, but are further ahead than I am. And it's like, whoa. Well, there's no point in... Uh, you know, on either side, there's no point really in comparing yourself to others. It just doesn't matter. But it is just something that I'm noticing. But, yeah, for me personally, I just don't see any other way. The only way for me to keep moving forward, the only way for me to keep the process going, and the only way for me to not give up is to just go slow go real, real slow. And there are times when things go really slow. You know, I've mentioned this before, and it's like interesting that it's, it's happened enough times now that it's a pattern. It's something I can kind of, I can kind of predict what's going on in my brain a little bit. Where when things are really going slow, it's because there's something in my subconscious that needs to be untangled something about this story that I need to figure out. And in this case, like I said last time, I was working on, you know, like five different stories for a little while. And with this horrifying summer heat and stuff, I just finally gave up on all of them. Except the main novel. But also in the novel itself, I mentioned how I've been working on this one conversation for like two weeks. <laughs> And I'm still in that conversation, but, but I was thinking, like, is, does this mean that 
If in the past this meant that there was something underlying that I needed to figure out, something under the hood, something with the fundamental structure of the story that I needed to sort out, is that what's happening this time? And now I can be like fairly confident that it is. Like I can be more comfortable with going super slow because I've got enough evidence built up in the other times that this has happened where even though I always go pretty slow, when I go crazy slow, it's because there's something that I don't want to skip past. I don't want to just skirt past it and cause problems that'll rear their head later. Something is wrong now. It's just weird because I don't know what it is until I find a solution. And in a general sense, like I'm coming to the end of the book, it could, it could happen pretty soon. So this conversation, I mean, there's only really been the two main characters this whole time. There's Surratt the Rhino Girl and Quaylum the Jellyfish Boy, Squid Boy. And this conversation just really seems important. I really got to creep through it because it's like, this is it. Like, these are the final things these people are going to say to each other. If they have anything important to say, now's the time. But it was all kind of a little uh, nebulous in my mind still. The very end is clear, but basically, I guess what I came to as like a conclusion is that I've been focusing very heavily on Surratt the Rhino Girl. She is by far the character I'm most interested in. And nothing has changed too much about her arc in this story. It's been pretty clear from the start and the big picture of it has not really changed. But on my Instagram, somebody commented that they started listening to the podcast. You know, obviously I get a lot of people, more people back at the start of the podcast than, than keep up with it. I get a pretty regular number of people every week that start the podcast, you know, and uh, far fewer that make it as deep in as you are right now, my friend. But this person on my Instagram, she was saying that she was listening because she's interested in not in Surratt, but in the other guy, in Quaylum, in the Jellyfish Boy. She's like, I'm, I'm really curious about what's going to happen to this guy. What's his little plot? And I thought that was surprising because I care about him so much less. Like, even though my book only has two characters for most of the book, it made me realize I'm still doing a disservice to one of them. There's one character that I really care about, and then there's the other one, you know? It never really occurred to me that someone would find the other character more interesting. This character who grew up on a space station, has never been anywhere but this space station, basically just grew up in an orphanage slash school slash university slash workplace, <laughs> you know? Your whole life is just part of this process. You're just there to do research and do science, and then when you're finally retired, then you get to leave. And just that comment on Instagram made me think way more about this guy. Like, again, this is my last chance. Last chance of romance, you know? Closing time at the rodeo. <laughs> if I've got something to say about this guy, now's the time. And again, it's been a very slow process, you know? That was like two or three weeks ago that that little exchange happened on Instagram. 
And I've just been kind of picking away at it and working on it and trying to think about it. But again, writing, it's just not direct work. Focusing directly is not always how to get an answer. Sometimes you just got to let your subconscious do its thing. You just got to let the, the wheels grind in your mind. Let the millstone mill until something comes of it. And it's been slowly coming together. And today in particular, I really feel like it finally, a version of events has come into focus. Things could still evolve more by the time I get to the end of this story. But basically, Sarat the Rhino Girl, she's gained control of this space station because there's like a sentient will, like a, a space fungus that runs this station, that has its own will, and has its own awareness. And it's, basically it's as indentured as everyone else. It's also trapped on this space station. It doesn't like it, it doesn't want it. It wants change, it wants to get out of here. And when this crazy, violent, weird, erratic rhino person comes into play, you know, basically the station itself says like, all right, I'm on your side. Let's fucking do this. Let's fuck shit up. Anything to get out of here. These fucking squid people are never gonna... Nothing's ever gonna change. I'm handing the keys to the castle over to you. Do what you will, crazy rhino girl. Get us out of here by any means necessary. Which again, book's called Explode. It's not a big fucking surprise what's gonna happen. But basically, I had Quaylem, the jellyfish guy, just ineffectual through all of this. And kind of what I've come up with is, it's no different. He's going to remain ineffectual. I'm just going to examine it more and focus on it more. Because, like, if, if this story were told from his perspective, if this were some young adult novel with our plucky little hero... Danger would come to his home, you know? The crazy rhino girl shows up, wields power, threatens to blow the whole place up, and he would find a way to save everyone, to save the place, you know? He would use his bravery and his ingenuity to foil her schemes, or if you really want to get idealistic about it, you know, the best way to get rid of an enemy is to make them your friend. He could turn her away from the path of destruction. And that would be the standard story if this were his story. But this is not his story. This is Surat the Rhino Girl's story. And she is going to blow up this space station. And nothing is going to stop that. So basically, that's what I came up with for Quaylum the Jellyfish Boy is Again, his, his plot arc doesn't really change. I'm just going to make her more aware of it. She's going to spend more time examining him and watching him through the mechanisms of the station. And being almost uh, like pitying him a little bit. Of like, look at this guy. He's the guy. He's the potential protagonist. He's the potential hero. He's the one guy who got to know her well enough and interacts with her often enough that he knows something is wrong. He knows something bad is coming. He's trying to run around behind the scenes and set 
the wheels in motion to save his way of life. But she is so far beyond him, you know? I mean, she and the station are simpatico now, and they both want this system to be gone. So he's just like pathetically trying to use his connection to the station to access information and to set up plans and stuff. But he just doesn't even realize that the station is already against him. The station is not on his side. There's just nothing he can do. And why should there be, you know? Like that fairy tale bullshit, that fucking silly adventure novel bullshit of the one guy who fixes everything and changes everything. I've never liked stories like that. I've never found them compelling. I'm never on the hero's side. I'm never on the good guy's side. It's just not believable. It's too simplistic. It's not a realistic appraisal of how the world works to me. But even just bringing all this stuff into focus and realizing, you know, crystallizing how I feel about this, I like this idea. Like, this is better than just just having him be ineffectual throughout the end of this story is now it's like he still is ultimately he's not going to change anything but just focusing on it more like kind of giving him his due like he he's trying you know like giving a fair amount of attention and respect to what this guy wants and who this guy thinks he is and what this guy thinks is important even though he's going to fail. I think that's kind of cool, and this is still like the next step that I'm still working on. But maybe if Sarat is like, like she sees this all before it even happens, you know? She sees the climactic finale, she sees how crushed this guy's going to be, how hopeless it is for him to, to change anything. But since she knows that's coming, she knows this is the future for him, Maybe she can try to set him up for an easier future in the post-explosion world, you know? Maybe she can start trying to, like, pitch him the idea of, like, hey, what would you do? What if this way of life was gone? What if you weren't on this station anymore? What if you were out in the big, scary fucking universe, the outside world that you've never been to? What would you do? How would you prepare for that? Are you prepared for that? Or if I wanted to get creepier with it and kind of more more harsh, you know, like kind of more cruel about it, instead of just trying to shore him up or give him confidence, because she doesn't really believe in that. That's not the civilization she's from. She's from the crazy, violent rhino world where you learn through pain and adversity, you know? You learn by having the physical world smash you in the face. Maybe she can set things up somehow to make things even worse for him. It's like, okay, the station's gonna explode. Everyone's gonna have to evacuate. What is likely to be the next step for this guy? He's probably just going to go to whatever refugee spot there is for everyone else. Maybe he'll go back to his home planet. And 
I don't know that Surratt the Rhino would have this level of power. She's got a lot of power on the space station, but once the space station's gone, her power would be greatly reduced. But it's like, could she find some way to keep this guy from having ground to go to, you know? Could she find some way to keep him from going back to his home world? Like, could she threaten him somehow of like, hey, hey, it's over now. Now you're off into the wild frontier. And if you go back home, if you go back to your planet, if you take the easy way out, I'm going to come after you and I'm going to make it so much worse. <laughs> you know? I don't know quite how to set that up in a way that'll seem believable, but I love that idea of like, oh, you think this is bad? You think what just happened is bad? This is a gift. What's going to be bad is if you don't accept the gift, you know? If you fucking wuss out on this shit, if you wallow in your sorrows, if you just fall back into line with all the rest of your fucking compatriots, like you have been your whole life, things are going to be so much worse. But I don't quite know how she can arrange that threat, you know? I feel like I've done a pretty okay job with making her super overpowered within the space station. It's all seems pretty believable to me. But how that could extend beyond, I don't know. But I'm getting there. Slow but sure, I'm getting there. And yeah, just once again, it's like, yeah, man, I am slow. I am so slow. Holy shit, I'm slow. But for me, yeah, it's just how it's got to go. Like, what if I didn't have this stuff? What if I did just scoot my way along to the ending without properly considering Quailum the Jellyfish Boy, you know? I guess the argument is you can do that in the second draft and yada, yada, yada. But I think I need to have that now. I think I need the skeleton, the fundamental structure of this story to be as strong as it can be on this first pass. I want my subsequent drafts to hopefully be largely cosmetic. Make some cuts, shorten some things, smooth some stuff out, rearrange maybe, clarify some ideas. But I don't want the structure to need to be changed that much, hopefully. I mean, we'll see, right? It's part of the process, but... But to me, it feels a lot more important to go as slow as it needs to go now to make all this stuff as strong, as robust as it can be. Man, for a song of the episode, I was thinking how, again, just thinking about things like a movie, like I'm always saying. I've got like a song that could be Surratt's song. I got a bunch of songs for her. I was even thinking like as the credits are rolling, you know, after the first song ends, the second song could roll. And I got a song for the station itself, for the Akamulon, the, the being that runs the station. I've got a theme song for the Akamulon. But I don't have one for Quailum the Jellyfish Boy. I just don't have a song that represents that guy. I should really think about that, because, like, that's a problem. You know, I'm so musical-based, and my mind works so much based on music. The fact that I don't have a song that makes me think of this one character is 
definitely a sign that I have neglected this character, you know? I gotta think about that. But in the meantime, I'll play the song that makes me think of the Akamulon. This is a song called Calculation Theme by Metric. And it's just a really quiet, weird little song. That uh, the reason this makes me think of the Akamulon that runs the station is like the Akamulon doesn't have any particular ill will toward the, the jellyfish people. It doesn't blame them for how boring it, their existence is. It just needs to get out of there. So this song has that feeling of like an apology, just like a quiet, gentle lullaby of an apology of like, hey guys, sorry. <laughs> sorry I blew up your space station. Sorry I made you all evacuate. Sorry I shook up all your lives. But I had to. I just had to. I couldn't stay here anymore. So here's Calculation Theme by Metric. Thank you for listening. Adios. I'm sick, you're tired. Let's dance. Break to love, make lust. I know it isn't. I'm sick, you're tired. Let's dance, dance, dance. Cold as
I had a nice short little episode there, but I got a thing I got to add on. I think I figured out how I could end the story with this extra twist of the knife with Surat really fucking with Quaylam. So what I was thinking is in the final moments of the story, the station is in the midst of exploding. You know, they're still on the station, but the final destruction has begun. And it could be that this isn't even a premeditated plan. This just happens in these last moments when Surat is talking to Quaylam. And basically in this last bit of the story, even though Surat has taken over control of the station and she's aware of virtually everything that's going on in the station, Quaylam knows something weird is going on. And he also, he just, his little power is that he can keep himself very even keeled. He can keep himself emotionally repressed. And he does. It like frustrates her for the whole end of the story that even with the power of the Ecomulon, the power of the space station, she can't tell what he's thinking. She can't read into his, his mannerisms and even just his tiny little sub-vocalizations or tiny little subconscious movements that would allow her to basically read the emotional state of the other people on the station it doesn't work with him until this last moment when he realizes the extent of how bad things have gotten and how much he has lost and how the station is going down and there's no saving it and that's when the tidal wave comes out the tidal wave of his just fury you know of just being betrayed so badly but Surratt likes it, you know? She's the crazy rhino person. She just like feels the wave of anger and it just feels good to her. She's like, ah, there we go. Nice to finally meet you, you know? <laughs> nice to pass on, you know, just the cycle of anger. She's an angry weirdo anyway. Her planet got destroyed. Now she's destroying someone else's little world and just passing on the hate, just feeling it come back at her like waves and she just loves it, she loves the feeling. And in that moment, that's where she could come up with this final ultimatum where she could say, look, me and the Akamulon here, we're simpatico, we're together. This Akamulon is way smaller than the one on your home world. You know, like they evolved, the jellyfish people evolved with this this other entity. And the one on the space station is just basically another version of the one from their home planet. So Surat could say, I hope this makes some kind of sense. It'll make sense in the book. But Surat could say, look, this one is smaller now. If it reintegrated with your home world now, it would just probably be absorbed and just disappear. But if we go out into the wild blue yonder, and we build up and we expand. If we make this Akamulon bigger and more powerful than the one on your home world, and then we go to your home world, what's gonna happen then? 
again, who knows for sure? Maybe your homeworld would win, but maybe it wouldn't. Maybe we could take over. Maybe I could take over your entire planet. And Surat could have the Akamulan open itself to Qualum to show him, like, I'm not lying, this is true. Take a look, take a look at everything. And Qualum could see that the Akamulan from the station, it doesn't want to do this. It doesn't want to go back to the homeworld and take over. But it is possible that that could be a thing that could happen. And Surat might be able to make this happen, as all this could happen. So that's what Surat would say is, hey, maybe it's not likely. Nobody necessarily even wants this to happen, but it could happen. And is that a chance you're willing to take? Are you willing to put your entire species in that kind of danger? I don't think you are. And I'll make you a deal. If you don't want this to ever happen, if you don't want me to ever try to enact this plan, you only have to do one thing. Never go home. And that's how I know this is what I want to do and where I want this story to go, because when that thought hit me just fucking 10 minutes ago, that sentence, never go home. It's just like one of those little moments that I'm like, fuck yeah, like it all comes together. It's so crazy that I've been working on this story for two years, but there's stuff that can only happen as you work on things, you know, like that I didn't have this planned out in advance, but it fits so well with the themes of this story. Surat's world is gone. She can never go home. And now she's doing this to someone else. You can never go home. If they set up a little refugee station, you don't go there. If you find yourself falling back into your boring fucking old life, you don't do that. You want to go back to your home world? Well, you can't. You can never go home. And she feels like a joy at fucking this guy this way because she thinks it's good for him. She thinks this is helping him. She thinks his old life was a waste of a life. She thinks she's saving him. And he is just, all he can feel is anger. <laughs> you know, it's all hit him so suddenly and so out of nowhere. And it's so overwhelmingly brutal. That the calm guy, the guy who can literally mask his emotions from other people, he can't anymore. He doesn't know what to fucking do. And yeah, it just feels right. It just feels like that's what I want to do. So I was saying I don't have a song for Qualum, and I still don't. But I was listening to this song called Map Change by Every Time I Die. And I feel like this could be not a song that at all fits with Qualum as he usually is. This only fits with how he feels at the end of this story. He's on an escape pod. He's hurtling away into space. This person who he thought was his friend has completely destroyed everything in his life and then has added this additional cruelty of don't go home. Time for your life to get hard. And he just feels 
helpless anger like he's never felt in his life. And this song really fits for that. If you imagine this guy speeding away into space, away from his exploding world, the only place he's ever known for his whole life, and with nowhere to go. And this one person who caused all this, you know, this is not an act of God. This is not an act of nature. Somebody did this to him. Somebody who he was nothing but kind to did this to him. Just imagine the anger that guy would feel. But even better, about two-thirds of the way through this song, the anger abates. It's like the wave crashes and the song calms down and it's more just this feeling of inevitability, this feeling of like the rage has started to pass and now it's just like, fuck, fuck, what do I do now? So yeah, this song, Map Change by Every Time I Die, really fits with that vibe. All right, so let's listen to that and I will talk to you next time.